This message by Sam Shen, entitled "The Death of Death," was recorded at Wellspring Church on April twenty-first, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses fifty-four through fifty-seven. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of First Corinthians chapter fifteen. We'll be reading verses fifty-four through fifty-seven together. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, we had the opportunity to celebrate our 20th anniversary as a church, and um, I can recall early on in our church's life, often I was officiating weddings. It was actually happening quite frequently, but I haven't actually officiated a wedding in a long time, and、uh, this is not a, an appeal so that I could officiate more weddings. <laughs> But there is one thing that has happened in the time over time has been actually not officiating weddings but officiating funerals, and says a lot about how old I am and where life is going for me as well and for many of us. But I do know this is that as time passes, we all have experienced and continue to experience the realities of death. And for those who have lost loved ones or friends and family members, you know the myriad of emotions that pass during those times. There is obviously shock over loss.、Um, there's intense sorrows and grieving. There's also the the strange sensation of recognizing that there's a lot to do. It's a busy time, so you have to take care of funeral arrangements, and you go to. Visit、uh, funeral homes and work with the morticians, and so it's quite busy, as well as responding to texts and receiving condolences and phone calls. Another part of this grieving process, this funeral process, is another strange aspect to it that I think most people who imagine what grieving is like doesn't really get is the laughter that comes over fond memories. There can even be a strange sense of lightness, and with that comes guilt and the burdens of guilt, because perhaps you've been caring for someone long term, and when that person dies, suddenly that burden of caring for that person is gone, and so this lightness happens, and then with that comes the guilt over feeling that way. There is really no template for how do we deal with death. Because death is horrific. It is always tragic. It is not normal. And no matter how much our world tries to normalize it, it is not supposed to be this way. And so, on this day, throughout all the world, Christians celebrate the one day that death no longer has a sting. It's unlike any other day because on this day we celebrate death's demise. 
And this is Paul's essential message for us in this text of the Bible in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57. It's the message that describes the death of death. And so I'd like to approach this death with three major points. First, talking about the shame of death. And then secondly, the sting of death. And then thirdly, the death of death. First, in verse 54, we see the shame of death. Paul writes, when perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death inherently produces shame. Actually, one author comments that our society today is more ashamed of death than any other time in history. And we know this because previously, even a century ago, death was a communal event. It was never hidden. When someone died, they would actually place their body in the house, the home that they lived in, and they would invite all their guests, all their family and friends to come and visit this whole family as well as to view this body over a period of time. They would embalm the the body the best they could. And then after about a period of three to five days of mourning, the family would together go outside of their house, perhaps, and bury their, that family member right in the backyard or in a, in a public graveyard. But it would be sons and uncles and cousins and husbands and wives. They would actually be doing the shoveling. And they would actually be lowering, physically lowering that body together. But today, death is behind closed doors. We do all that we can to hide ourselves from the reality of death because it's hard to think about someone dying. In fact, we don't even like to use the word death. Most of us, when we lose someone, we use a euphemism to describe it. We use the word or phrase, passed away. And when you really think about that phrase, it's a very odd statement because it makes it seem as though they're shifting somewhere. We don't want to describe what they were like, what death is like, and then where they're going. We just want to use some sort of phrase that sort of lessens the edges of death. That's because death reminds us that despite all of our technological advances, Paul describes death as perishable. He says it's the perishable realities of our souls and our bodies, uh, not our souls, but our bodies that actually causes death, that there is a decaying aspect of death. And we see this even today, even in our present day and age, because most people don't like, for example, when they're ill or in the hospital to receive visitors or to let people know they're sick. We're not even talking about someone who's deeply physically sick, but someone who is just struggling with physical ailments, how often is it that we are very readily accepting of visitors or going out and seeking prayer and and being in need of help? It's just not who we are. Because sickness shows weakness. And it it depends. It, It has a dependency aspect to it. And for most of us, That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to depend on anyone. We want to be individualistic. Our whole lives have been like that is 
start at a young age and you need to learn how to walk and you need to learn how to feed yourself and go to the bathroom and do all these things. And so our whole lives is building up to independence. And then once you hit that pinnacle, slowly it degrades and dependency becomes a part of our lives. I used to love playing sports. Um, if you are going to be here on sports day, I still have the last man standing trophy of all four sports. So I challenge some of you to come and try to take that away from me. But the last time I played soccer with a group of guys in our church, I felt as though my Achilles was about to tear. I mean, it was very close. And so I thought, I cannot play. I'm about to hit 50. If I hit that if I tear that Achilles, I'm out for a year. So I stopped playing soccer. But I remember with a group of guys, I was starting to play volleyball every week. And in my mind, I could imagine myself going for a hit or diving for a ball, but my body could just not do it. Uh, last week, with the young adults, we hiked for about 12 miles. And I went around the next day asking, especially all the younger people, I said, are you sore? And every one of them said no. And here I am pulling my leg out of my bed and getting out of the car. Those under 30, not sore. Those over 40, very sore. You, you all can appreciate that. We know that as time goes, and you could graph it, as time goes, the body goes. And every effort is made by our culture and our world to not let that be. And so how much is made off of cosmetics and plastic surgery and physical therapy and sports therapy, all of it and youthful clothing, all of it to try to delay the perishable aspect of life in our bodies. Um, I heard this story from a friend. He was in the hospital and he was saying that on the night that he was spending over, he had been curtained off, and there was a, a man next to him. And this man next to him was a very capable, strong man. He had obviously lived a very wealthy and powerful life, and uh, he had a lot of people under control, successful in business. And as he was spending this night, in the middle of the night, the man woke up, and he was just distraught. And the reason was that he had wet his bed. Whatever, the bedpan didn't catch everything, and so the whole bed had, had, had completely wet. And the nurse came in to clean up everything, and he, was, he started weeping because he was so embarrassed, so ashamed. But more than just being ashamed, he had no control for the first time, essentially, over his life. A man who had control, for obviously, for most of his life and suddenly lost control. When that happens, you begin to really understand the shame of death. That our perishability and our mortality, once experienced, is shameful. So much so in this world. But we don't just experience it in the hospital room. We experience it at all sorts of ages because every time we say goodbye, every time we're rejected from a job opportunity or perhaps a school, applying for graduate schools or colleges, there's a shame aspect to that 
There's a shame to losing a job or a shame to being, being interested in a future potential wife or husband and then being rejected. All of that reminds us not about shame, but about the perishability of life, that nothing lasts and that in this world there still is that rejection, that sorrow, that grieving, that despairing, because we are perishable. We are subject to loneliness and depression. And Paul says that everything you hold dear will fade away. It's the nature of a broken world filled with broken people who have assumed that living life apart from God is their road to joy. But if you're deeply honest with yourself and observant in the world that you live in, you can see evidentially that nothing lasts. Everything from our own hearts to the physical brokenness of our bodies to our sorrows and anxieties and grievings all point to the fact that life is perishable. Pastor Tim Keller, he describes um, Jean-Paul Sartre's view of shame, the existentialist philosopher. And Jean-Paul Sartre says, imagine you're looking through a keyhole and through the keyhole you see all of these people doing things without anyone knowing that you're actually watching. And because of that, you get a sense of real power over those people because they have no idea that you're watching. And so they think they're free, but in actuality, they're not. And so you sense that power that you have, that control. But then you turn around and notice there's a keyhole behind you. And you notice an eye looking through that keyhole. And before you felt life was in control and powerful, and suddenly, what do you feel? You feel violated. You feel ashamed. You wonder, have they heard? For those of you who have Google Home or Amazon's Alexa, you know, they've been transcripting a lot of your conversations. You can actually go to the history, and I actually do have Amazon Alexa. And I look at the history, and you see, wait a second, I actually did say that. When that happened, so many people started feeling vulnerable, feeling ashamed, possibly. That's because once your private thoughts are heard, those things that you thought no one else knew and suddenly people know, there is that sense of vulnerability and it is a heavy burden to bear that shame. But this past weekend, we celebrated someone who bore shame, someone who had no shame because he did nothing wrong, and yet he bore shame on a cross. He was stripped naked, and he had a, a crown of thorns on his head and nails into his hands and feet, and then raised up for all to see so that he would be utterly in shame. It wasn't because he did anything. Instead, he was the ultimate keyhole. He was the one who would do this so that our shame would be placed on him. So that he would feel and bear the weight and the burden of every ounce of shame that is brought about through our perishability was placed on Jesus. And so therefore, his burdens would be excruciatingly painful, not just because of physical pain. If that were it, 
Well, many people here could bear physical pain. And throughout history, many people have, even Christians, have died physically tortured for the sake of Christ. But the one thing that no human being has ever borne is the shame of every single person who trusts in the name of Christ. That's what Jesus did. He went through this to free us from the shame of perishability and free us also from the sting of death, which is the second part. I was driving once on the road in my minivan, going about 40 miles an hour, right relatively near my house. It was a warm summer day. And as I'm driving along, my windows are open and I hear a buzzing sound. And this bee at 40 miles an hour came into my car and stung my head right here. I, I'm driving. I was, I almost started swerving. It, for some reason, and it hurt a lot. I arrived home, had a lump on my head, put some ice on it. And it was painful throughout the day, but I thought, oh, okay, no big deal. At least it's, it's just that I, I don't have bee allergy at, uh, sting allergy or anything like that. Forgot about it after a few days. A few days later, I noticed something odd is that I started getting a lump on my neck. And this lump started growing. And I've, I know people who have had cancer in that area. And so it was very odd and it was growing and increasing. So I thought, oh no. What's going to happen? So I happened to talk to uh, Stephen, who's a who's an ENT, and he was saying, you know what? Did anything happen? Yes, I got a bee stung on my head right here. And basically, that sting on my head caused my lymph nodes to react to fight that infection. But in that moment of fear, when you think, do I have a cancerous tumor? It makes you stop, pause, and wonder about life. You know, stings are painful. And in my case, this sting did not lead to death. But whether it is a bee sting, um, or for those of you who know of Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, he was stung by a stingray on his heart and he actually died. Stings can be fatal. If you're allergic to a bee sting, it can be fatal. And look at what Paul says in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Paul equates the sting of death to sin. Why? Because just like that sting on my head, sin is also a sting to our souls. And just like that bee sting triggers a, a response of my lymph nodes, so too the sin that we commit, the sting of sin, actually triggers a response in your soul. And it actually unlocks what is inherent in us, which is a defiance, a sense of saying that I don't need God in my life. Sin is essentially that. What Paul's saying is that by nature, and we use, we Christians use that word sin without really explaining it or thinking about it, but sin is, it's an idolatry. It's a displacement of God. It's a defiance against Him. It's saying, I'm my own God. I will do things my own way, and I don't need you, God, or anything in my life to tell me what I should do. We all, whether the littlest of child to the oldest of men and women, we all have that heart. And you know, it never really goes away. It's always there. And all sorts of circumstances trigger and unlock what is deep in our souls. 
And so what Paul is saying is that sin ultimately, as this defiant displacement of God, it reminds us that the wages, Paul describes it in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of defiance and displacement and idolatry, all of that leads to our death, to our ultimate death, a far greater death than anything we could experience physically. On top of that, Paul says, not only is the sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. That there is a legal punishment for this defiance. You can't just simply get away with it because every, you think everything is going to be okay. Positive thinking will not help you when the law is at stake. Some of you know what happened with um, the whole college acceptance scandals and varsity blues. And you know uh, one of the actresses, Lori Laughlin, she and her husband decided not to plead guilty. She was she and her husband were one of the only few who decided to plead not guilty. And if you follow the case and you read her response as to why, it's because they actually didn't think the law would be that bad, that the judge would sort of say, oh, it's okay, you're wealthy, you know, you didn't know what you're doing, everything will be fine. So when once they started realizing that actually they could possibly face decades of imprisonment, there's this shock that comes with it. I didn't know the law would be like that. I didn't know the law would be so so law-like, so legalistic. Paul's saying that the power of sin is the law. And when we are defiant against God and we start saying, yeah, but, you know, at the very end of my life, I can always say, God, you understand, you forgive me. We have no idea what the power of the law is like. If you've ever been to a courtroom, and I have, and I've shared this before, of I was uh, sitting in a, the stands, I don't know what they're actually called, but, and I was watching, and there was a man who had um, been guilty. He was in an orange jumpsuit, and he was cuffed, and the judge basically was sentencing him, and he was sentencing him to over two decades of imprisonment. And as I was watching this, suddenly you see him physically shaking, and and I'm watching from behind, and suddenly the back of his his jumpsuit just got dark because he had wet himself with such fear. That judge was so powerful at that moment because when you face the law without any defense, and when sentencing happens, you're left with no words but only fear and terror. And when Paul says the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. When death comes, you're faced with this legal judgment. It is a horrific, it is terrifying. Before a holy, righteous judge. We're not talking about a, a human judge, but a righteous, holy, infinitely powerful judge. You do not want to be like Lori Laughlin and standing there overconfident thinking, well, he's going to let me go. It's no big deal. You do not want to face God this way. And because of verse 57, Paul reminds us, you do not have to face God this way. As long as you still have life and breath, you have hope. Because death has met its match. Death has died. And we see this in verse 57. But thanks be to God, 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not have to face the judge defiantly with sin and raising our fists at him and saying, how dare you do this to me? Because God wants to show mercy. Paul tells us that when we trust in Jesus Christ as our substitute, as our savior, every demand of the law upon us is completely satisfied. It's as if when you face God at death and when you appear before him as judge, you have perfectly kept the law. So you are perfectly a law abider. You have followed God. You have obeyed him your whole life. And nothing you have ever done, past, present, or future, is looked upon God and said, well, actually, that's missing here. You know, if you're a Christian, you've trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When the time comes for judgment, Jesus comes and says, you know, Father, as you see me, you see this person. Perfectly righteous, perfectly just. But you have to also understand that when that happens, also what this past Friday the cross was about was saying, Father, this person sins and all their rebellion and rejection of you throughout their life and all their raising of their fist and saying, I don't need you. I'm going to bear that. It's as if Jesus did that against his own father. The Old Testament had very harsh punishments for a child that blasphemed against God. The punishment was that they would be stoned to death. Well, think of it this way. When Jesus died on that cross, as God the Son, perfect Son whom we sang about, on that day when we face God as judge, we face God as judge with Jesus saying, my righteousness, all my righteous acts and deeds, everything he did that we record in the New Testament, every sin not sinned, by Jesus is ours. But everything that I've done against God my whole life, Jesus faces that punishment. The Son. And that's what we trust. That's why death has died. Death has died not because of something we've done. Death has died because Jesus died. God the Son died. And friends, we must remember this is what this week is about. It was remembering not just the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, which is startling enough. It just doesn't happen. People rising from the dead three days later. But also that he suffered so miserably so that we do not have to die. And so that we can be set free to live forever without shame, but actually today without shame. This is not just a future life. It's also here and now. Death has lost its sting because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And he's killed death forever. It has no power over us. It doesn't mean that we do not grieve when we lose loved ones, but the power of what that death means is gone forever. On April 19th, 1882, a 73-year-old man died in his home, in his bed. He was surrounded by his wife and two children, and all three of them wept inconsolably. He was so miserable, his death was so hard for him, that he was quoted in saying, if I could but die. And as he was saying this, vomit and blood was spewing forth from his mouth. 
He cried out, Oh God, Oh Lord God. And his pain was so excruciating that he lost consciousness after those words. A half hour, he died. And his name, Charles Darwin, atheist. He had decided his whole life to say that there is no God. Everything's through natural selection. And yet at the end of his life, something struck him. What if I was wrong? In fact, he said about the origin of species, it's been a fantasy. Oh, to find that on the last moment of your life. Let me tell you about another atheist. He uh, was uh, wrote these words. He said, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be ungrateful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. Yeah, and as you can see, the great atheist C.S. Lewis, Oxford Don. But when he, as he describes himself, that he went into heaven kicking and screaming, trying to board a bus and then one day saying, I yield. And from that day forward, recognizing that God is God. To see that death is not an end, nor is it misery, but it is preparing for a true country. And that's only possible because of someone who killed death forever and ever. As I shared I don't do too many weddings anymore because the older you get, no young couple wants an old man to do their weddings. But I do do a lot more funerals. And I think that is something because it says that so many of you in this body has been touched by the loss, the grievings of a loved one. If you have not, you will. And if you think that all you have is to be able to say, I've lived my life. I have a biographical sketch of every accomplishment that I've had. And if your funeral is about reading off that biological sketch, I went to this college. I graduated summa cum laude. I uh, got this job and made this much money. I married this person who was also well-connected and I donated this much money to this institution and volunteered at this place. And, and all you see in the front is a casket. I often think that's a very, it's a huge conundrum to hear someone's accomplishments and to think, what does it matter for that person? Really? If we are not in Christ, then death is horrific. If we are in Christ, if we have trusted and believed and simply yielded ourselves and say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I lay down and I surrender my heart, my will. By that path, when we yield to God, we have room to see and we actually see God as judge, but also as father. And you want to meet God that way. Won't you yield to him? Won't you place your heart to him? Won't you trust him? Jesus rose from the grave today so that you might be set free to live in joy with him
today and forever so that you might see your true country. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the wondrous truth that the perishable has been done away with and the imperishable is now here. As we take this bread and wine, I pray that it would be so much more than merely a physical symbol, but it would truly represent a spiritual reality that we are bought and purchased, that we will face the judge no longer as one who is condemned, but instead one who is guiltless, set free, because, oh, Father, your son bore that guilt. He bore it horribly on that cross so that we would not have to, so that we would instead be welcomed into your family. Father, I especially pray for any man, woman, student, child who is in this room, who's been deciding for this long that they do not need you, that they are okay, life is okay without you. But Lord, that is such a a closed door to the freedom that you long for for people. You are not looking for people to be morose and to be joyless. Quite the opposite. You're looking for, you want people to experience the joy and freedom that is found only in the name of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that there would be some who would be saved today. We pray, Father, that the prodigal would come home today. We pray, O God, that he who the Son sets free would be free indeed. And we pray that as people come to this table, this table of mercy, they would come with joy and delight. The lightness of heart that is found in Christ Jesus alone. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.